Hello, Marcus Today members. This is Marcus Padley, of course. And I have an interesting podcast for you today. I have the pleasure of introducing you to John Abernathy of Climb Investment Management. John and I have known each other for years, and you might know that John is the chairman of Climb Capital, which is a listed investment company, and also Climb Investment Management, which is also listed. John has been known in the industry for 30 or 40 years. He started in the 80s, same time as me. I was on the sell side. In other words, stockbroking. John was on the buy side. He's worked for NRMA, Deutsche Bank, Wilson HTM, and now, of course, Climb Asset Management. And what I hope will become a regular podcast, John is the voice of reason amongst the noise, has a background in economics, and like Henry and myself, has a litany of war stories. So I ask you to sit back and listen as we discuss value investing, does it work? The big banks, are they good investments? Macquarie, BHP and the best stock in the world. This is general advice only, not to be confused with advice suited to your personal financial circumstances. Sit back and enjoy. Here we go. John, am I right to say you're a bit of a value investor or known as a value investor? Well, that's my background. That's how NRMA invested way back in the 80s, right. and I've held that heritage all through my life. Well, the question I have for you then, John, is a simple one. Most people are brought up on a diet of Warren Buffett on the assumption that value investing is the only sensible way to invest and that most trading is done by cowboys and gamblers. The question I ask you, John, is... Does value investing work? It does, but you've got to take a long-term view. and you've, it, it's, no, it's not set and forget, but I think if you understand how a company makes its money and how it uh, generates its own capital and how it redeploys its cash flow to grow, and if it's well-positioned in a marketplace, um, then that's probably a good place to start. But the world changes, and that's if you've been around as much as I have been. I guess I started in the 80s. And we've gone through some different different cycles. You know, we've gone through a property bust and boom and recession. Then we had an IT boom and we had the emergence of China and we had a GFC and we've had quantitative easing. So all those economic factors can change the economic uh, the environment for companies. And then you want to find companies which you can endure through all those. Now, what Buffett did very well is identify companies which have stood the test of time. But I think he had an unfair advantage by investing you know, 15, 20 years after the Second World War as America's industrial base developed. And he did something which other investors didn't do. We don't have the same benefit today. No, everyone knows everything. That's right. Let me ask you this then. If you are looking after your own superannuation fund at home, you may not have 20 years. Uh, you may have five years or 10 years, or you may be focused on the short term. A lot of people who are looking after their their money on a daily basis end up being short-term. Can you time the market? I think you can time stocks. I think you can time individual stocks. I've written in the past, and I've observed it, that you can pick any leading stock, uh, whether it's top 20 stock, top 50, top 100, and they can do exactly what they said they're going to do a year ago, but their share price will go on a wander throughout that year. And the, the average ambit range is 20%. 
from the bottom to the top in a trading range over a year and the company said last year we, we think we're going to do this. They deliver that a year later but the price has just wandered. And the ability to see when a stock has wandered down to the lower part of that range and then wanders up to the top of that range. My, my first trading <coughs> personally at NRMA, I, I was a junior analyst and I was watching the stock market. I think I've told you this before, Marcus. No, sorry. And I thought this is, you know, I was watching a stock called Piney Concrete which some of your listeners may remember, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I watched this stock and it did exactly that. I thought this is the most predictable, boring company, Pioneer Concrete, but the share price just goes wandering up and wandering down and I watched it for a couple of so I'm going to do my first investment. I put $5,000 into it. I said, I, I reckon in three months I'll make a 1000 bucks. Well, I did make a 1000 bucks, but it actually took about nine months, you know, and, but I, I learned the lesson that, you know, stick to, if you believe it, stick to it. So don't, you know, if, if it's not going dramatically wrong, stick to it. So I made my money, but I didn't make it as quick as I thought. So then your point, timing. So I got the timing wrong. The idea was right, but the time, the entry timing was wrong. So you can time the market, but you want to be quite astute about it. And people listening to you, hopefully you help them time the market. Well, well that's, that's uh, what I feel the idea is, is that I think from a value point of view, there's a group of stocks that you can value that are dependable, predictable, reliable, growing and you can identify that group of stocks but as you say there are two elements or a few elements of the share price but let's say there's value and then there's sentiment Mm. and I think you can quite easily or you've got to identify the moments where uh, uh, stocks end up in a sentiment hole and when they and when people are uh, we always say uh, when you find yourself standing at the desk punching the air in delight, it means one thing, yeah. sell. And we try and do a bit of that rather yeah. than... And you've got enough experience in that. Like, you, know, you pick a stock and it's going to achieve what it said, but the market's drifted down, then it starts rallying into the result. As if the market is saying, oh, it's going to be a good result, they're going to do what they said. It's probably a good time to take the profit before the result because it's actually in the price. And that just takes experience and watching. You know, when you, and very often I get clients saying, oh, that was a great result, John, by this company, and it fell. And I said, because it was in the price a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> so now the market's trying to anticipate the next, or the market's listening to what the CEO is saying about, oh, times are a bit tougher now. You know, the last month's being a bit tougher, so we're, we're not giving you a forecast. We'll give you a forecast in a couple of months at the AGM. And then the market goes into drift mode again. You know? So there's all these sentiment factors, and there's anticipation in price, and then sometimes the market completely gets it wrong. Well, the big, the big banks are the <laughs> obvious sector. It's sort of traditional that they will run in the month or month and a half ahead of their results. And then the, the market tends to peak out just before, or the, the banks tend to peak out just before their results and dividends, and then they go drifting away after the dividends disappeared, yeah. and then you can pick them up again. Yeah. If we were to take a, a sentiment moment, we bought Macquarie in the middle of the US banking crisis as things seemed to be improving, and they seemed to have caught all the problems, uh, and the price came out of that. So that's uh, quality stock. Do you like Macquarie? I love them. I've been... I was talking to you just before we had a cup of coffee, Marcus, and I made the point NRMA when I was there. And I, I went, it wasn't my claim to fame, but uh, NRMA was a very early supporter of Macquarie Bank in the 1980s. And the, the initial investment for the first, my, my recollection is for the first 10 years, our, we did do some capital raises where we supported, but every dividend we got, we had to reinvest. And when I took over the portfolio, again, my recollection is that we had an investment around $25, $30 million. If that investment had been held, it would be worth close to a billion dollars. That's how significant. So I've, I've had yeah. a, a long association with Macquarie. They're the smartest guys in the market. Um, it's always been the question about what 
is a fair remuneration, a fair incentive and what's fair to the shareholders. I think it's taken, took a long time to get it right. I think it is right now. I think they do protect the shares and want to get genuine share price because I think the staff are incentivised also through the shares. Yes. So that's, they've got it right. And they're smart. Yes. And they are one of the biggest uh, fund managers in the world, asset managers. And they've got away from those corporate deals. They still do corporate, but they're really going for the annuities. And we, one thing about annuities, they can't, if you get the right annuities, the right asset classes, they compound. Yeah. Compounds your revenue, compounds your profit. So, so I do like them. Would you in, ever invest in a stockbroker? There I are have. a few <coughs> listed stockbrokers. I have, and I've lost money. Um, I started <laughs> so, a stockbroker. So Mar- I, <laughs> I used to have shares in Tolhurst Knoll, and I think they went, they went from a dollar to, to nothing. Yeah. Anyway. Well, well I, I set up an online stockbroker with some partners in the 90s, um, and uh, we were first into that market. We actually were one of the first online stockbrokers. We saw it coming from America. And uh, we thought this would be a good venture capital play, so I got some old stockbrokers. And we... Anyway, we sold that business. I uh, got out of it. Uh, it became very complicated. And we weren't quick enough on technology. So that's early, early moves on technology. It's great, but you need to know when to sell you know, yeah. and get out of it. And we were lucky. We ran that business for three years into the internet bubble, and we were taken over by eCorp. The uh, big banks, uh, a lot of our members, uh, and I'll tell you 60%, uh, sorry, 70% of our demographics over 60. So a lot of self-funded retirees, a lot of self-directed investors. We have one member who claims to have all his money in the CBA and has massively outperformed the market and taken a good income. What do you think of the banks as investments? Well, the income's there. I mean, uh, if you look at the charts for the last 10 years, they've, they've pretty well hit their peaks, you know, eight years ago, and they've sort of gone sideways since. Yeah, they're going sideways in a range, and yeah. we, we sort of try and buy them at the bottom and sell them at the top. It's only a 10, 15, 20% range. And there's not much difference between the banks now. I mean, there's always been good banks and bad banks. I go way back when National Bank was the best credit bank, and then we had a situation where Westpac became the best credit bank probably 20 years ago. And then CBA's taken over. ANZ has always been trumping yeah. along. Right now, I think Westpac's in catch-up mode. National Bank seems to have picked up a tact. ANZ, okay. But CBA's the premier retail bank. It has diversified nicely. Uh, but let's be honest, the, the, re- the banks in Australia, from when I analysed them 30, 40 years ago, where they were diversified banks and, and it lent across the economy, now they're 80 85% housing. They are big building societies and they compete fairly aggressively for that. Now, is that a great place to be longer term? Look, the housing market will always be buoyant in Australia. The issue is not about the growth of housing and the growth of lending against housing. The issue is the price of housing. And that's something we've always got to watch because the the exposed part of the financial system of Australia to the housing market are the big four banks. Their model, unfortunately, they haven't diversified enough. They've tried to diversify offshore, failed everywhere. When they went aggressively into small business lending, cash flow lending, and they couldn't cope. It's an easy thing to do is lend against houses secured against property. It's an easy default place to be, but it's a highly competitive market. So they all go up together and they'll all come down together if there is ever a correction in the housing market. But I think we've got reasonably good regulation. I know we're going to talk about reserve banks later. Uh, we have good regulators, APRA and Reserve Bank, and I think Australian banks are well capitalised, but I always say to my clients, they need to be well capitalised because they're taking a lot more risk than people realise. 
John, let's look at resources. So I think BHP is a long-duration trading stock. There are periods where BHP has underperformed the market for six years on the trot. There are clearly booms in commodity prices at times. Uh, and if you look at BHP's share price over the last, even over the last three years, there will be six, seven, 20 to 50% movements in the share price. So I don't think it's a stock that you can buy and hold. I think it's a fabulous low volatility trading stock. You could make a bit of a uh, an industry out of just trading that one stock, quite honestly. How do you see, if you were sitting at home looking after your superannuation fund, would you be in BHP yeah. and Rio and Fortescue? Well, and you'd have an exposure which you go up or down, as you say. In the early 90s, the group I managed, the funds management team, was Fund Manager of the Year. NRMA got Fund Manager of the Year. And what, the reason we got Fund Manager of the Year is because we didn't have any BHP. Right. And when we were analysed by the asset consultant that came in and said, we're just looking at your numbers, we've worked out how you outperformed so strongly. Oh, yeah. And you took a lot of risk doing it. I said, OK, tell me more. Well, you were you didn't have any BHP. I said, so, yeah, that's a good decision. No, no, you took an incredible amount of risk by not having it. I said, hold on, what do you know about BHP, which I don't know? My job is to analyse stocks. And we made a decision that it was overvalued. And it was after a period where there was successive takeover bids and Japan had grown at a great rate and then collapsed. It was the biggest export market for BHP. <clears throat> I said, there was every reason not to be long, but they said you took risk in not being in owning it. So your outperformance was high risk outperformance. So it goes back to your first question about value investing. If you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you know, value investing and thought process helps you. To fast forward to today, I think BHP, the iron ore sector has still tailwinds for it. I'm not talking about the price of iron ore. I think there's tailwinds in demand. China is not going to stop anytime soon. We might not like it, but it's not going to stop anytime soon. So 4 or 5% growth, big steel consumer. India is coming out of nowhere. India is a $4 trillion economy, 1.2, 1.3 billion people. How can we sit here and say India is not going to grow compounding 5 or 6% for the next 20 or 30 years? It is. India is a quarter of the size of China with the same population. So I look at the big macro when I answer your question and say, I see a big macro tailwind for Australian commodity exporters. Doesn't mean they're going to go straight up, but the trend line, the tailwind, is going to be supportive for quite a while. I think we're always going to have an exposure there. Whether we top it up or top it down is the question. That's where you come in and say, well, OK. Yeah, my, my uh, or our game, what I try to do with members is uh, if we're going to trade a stock, and trading doesn't necessarily mean short term, uh, I think BHP is a long duration trading stock. Yeah. But if we're going to pick a stock to do that to, we want a stock that's going from bottom left to top right now yeah. performing the market. Yeah. And so. you understand the tailwind. If it didn't have a tailwind, you don't play that game. So let's find another one, right. another company which has tailwind constantly. So the share price is not being affected by massive headwinds because if it's got headwinds, then it's very hard to trade. But it's got a constant tailwind and it picks up on the tailwind every so often and then the, the tailwind drops away and the share price comes down. Like all this stuff about China slowing down, China being overgeared, property collapse in China. Short term. All short term. Yeah. BHP comes down. Now, China is, is a communist country it will do whatever it has to do to maintain growth because if it maintains growth, the people are happy. And it's over a billion people. You don't want a billion people being unhappy. So the administration is always going to stimulate that economy and keep wages growing and standard of living going. That's great news for Australian commodity exporters. That's the big tailwind. Not going to disappear. No. 
can't go past without asking whether you have a view on lithium stocks, electric vehicles, changes that are coming. Is that a tailwind or is that We're a invested. sentiment peak? We're invested and we, we've taken stakes in lithium stocks and in your SMA, which we're managing for you. We, we've got mineral resources there. So uh, I'll leave it. I, I'm not going to duck and weave. I'm, I'm a macro specialist. I do believe that the development of the electrical car market is a long term. We've started the journey. Uh, are there going to be twists and turns? Are there going to be new developments in power generation? I'm absolutely certain there will be. But at this stage, lithium we know about, and it looks a pretty good play. But it's, I take your point. We, we can't... I think the tailwind's there for clean energy development of, of electric vehicles. I think that's there. But I also have the view that the human race, it's very hard to predict the development of technology today, which we don't know about. <laughs> so I, I've li- we've both lived through an era, era, Marcus, where there's been so much development, which we've seen in our lifetime. We almost take it as... But when you reflect on it, crikey, you know, mobile phones and PCs and there's so much going on and so quickly, social media. Uh, Like it's, you can't predict it. I just think we're going to get better and better as a human race at developing solutions. But you don't want to be in today's solution, which is not tomorrow's solution. So we've always got to be on, on the watch out on the horizon what's coming. But at this stage... You stick with lithium. Yes, and there's only a couple of stocks that you could essentially value and playing at the other end of the market isn't your gig anyway. No. Right, good. Well, I always ask this, John, of CEOs who come on the couch. If you could buy one stock that wasn't your own, what would it be? On a world side, I'm going to duck and weave. I, I think Microsoft as a company, which has got a fantastic product, got a fantastic balance sheet, as a technology moat, the, the power of having a, a highly profitable company with a fairly significant market share, international brand name, and the ability to adjust to changes in the environment very quickly, like AI, it's incredible. Like smaller companies who are trying to develop technology who don't have the firepower run out of steam. The big companies can just go, what are you doing? Yeah, I'll buy you. What are you doing? Forget that. You know, and they just pick and choose. So I'd stick to that sort of company. If you had to pick one stock, I think I'd stick with that one. Well, John, that's a very interesting chat. I think a few of our people at home will be out to buy Microsoft today <laughs> and uh, carry on trading BHP on Marcus today's timing and keep holding Macquarie. Lovely to have you in. We should do this more regularly. I think we will do this more regularly. John, thank you very much for coming.